homie. I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the rasa. This is the Reality Dysfunction. Greetings, Dysfunctionals. Dr. Ernesto here with our Reality Dysfunction crew ready to chop it up about environmental justice and the Chicano Latino community. To help us do that, we are talking with Jennifer Allen Arroz. Jennifer is the National Director of CHISPA, which is an environmental organization staffed by Chicanos and Latinos working in barrios across the country. But before we hear from Jennifer, let's have the panel introduce themselves for today. How you doing, Jen? This is Francisco Lopez. Hello, this is Rainer Delgado, currently in uh, Saginaw, Michigan. Hi, I'm Cecilia Oveda from Detroit. Alex Lozano from the East Coast. Uh, Dan Sosa from Saginaw, Michigan. Jen, we're really happy that you're here with us today. Super excited to hear about the stuff that you're doing with, with Chispa. I know that we had a chance to work together over the summer, and it was one of the reasons why I wanted you to come on and talk about the uh, things that you have going on with your organizers all over the country. So I'm not going to try to talk too much more about it. I'm just going to turn it over to you. My name is Jennifer Allen Aros. I, I'm actually, so I'm actually not the national director of CHISPA. Um, that title is held by a, an amazing woman named Joana Vicente. Um, so I founded CHISPA uh, about uh, seven years ago as a grassroots community organizing program um, when I took a job with the League of Conservation Voters since then, because the program has grown so much, um, my title has changed, and now I, I run a department. My, I'm the senior vice president of community and civic engagement, and I actually run a department that includes CHISPA and the sort of the strategy of grassroots community organizing, particularly with communities of color. And I also oversee a work around democracy and voter participation and turnout. CHISPA is incredibly dear to my heart as is organizing. I have been, I don't know when to like sort of say, I got like interested in, in organizing or kind of on this path, but um, I, uh, really early on, I get, it's probably more the, the, you know, the roots of it is just, but you know, my family, my family has always been big union supporters and union members um, and were mine workers and steel workers and folks that pushed me really on it early on as a kid to speak up and stand up. And so then as life went on, kind of figuring out how to speak up and stand up, not as one person, but as a, as a collective, right? And thinking bigger, how to build power and affect change at larger scales. So it's been kind of the guiding force. What were some of the first things you organized around? <laughs> so when I was in high school, I was in uh, Northern Utah. Uh, we moved there for a little while. And um, I, uh, I started an animal rights group. In northern Utah and semi-rural areas, you get the first day of hunting season off. And my little animal rights club, we decided that we would protest that. I, I learned a really important lesson that like the tactic you should you choose should always be one that like resonates with you know with your audience. In this case, the tactic of boycotting the day off by coming to school did not connect with other high school students. And um, as you could sort of imagine, they're like, why would we go to school? So it was it was the first grossly, really poorly executed um, action, but I went on to do other work beyond that and to hopefully make better decisions. Did some work around indigenous land rights up in northern Nevada. I worked for the Western Shoshone 
for the traditional government there for a little while. I've worked on the um, U.S.-Mexico border for about a decade. I was, uh, I headed up a group called Border Action Network, and we worked on Arizona-Mexico, Arizona-Sonora border issues and with immigrant families around the state. I have a bunch of other stuff, some policing issues. Now I'm in the environmental justice and climate justice space. So, Jen, I, I knew that you had founded Chispa. I want to apologize. I, I, I didn't realize that you, that you weren't the director of it, but it makes more sense in like listening to you explain it. But my question is, why did you uh, decide that this was an important thing to do? I mean, the, the environment is, is a big deal, but it's so often uh, primarily seen as like a, a issue for white people, like only white people are affected by the environment. But we know the reality is, is that it's actually uh, brown and uh, marginalized communities that are mostly infected by, affected by climate change. And so, I mean, what brought you to, to this space where you were working on, or you decided that this needed to happen? You know, honestly, I had, when I sort of moved out, moved over from the immigrant rights space and working around U.S.-Mexico border issues over to environmental work, I, you know, I had been looking, and then I had been working with a community organization, right? a community organization for a while, and, and, you know, there's like, there's limits, like, oh, those sorts of organizations tend to be small, and I looked around and, and wanted to, wanted to understand how you could, how you could organize at a larger scale, right, because it, it's, it, you know, because I could see environmental groups, I could see political organizations, essentially, it looked like they would just like add water, and then poof, the sort of organizational infrastructure would emerge. And I just, I wanted to understand how that happened, because I had just always been working from like, building an organization from the ground up, you know, how do you set up your QuickBooks account, and you know, just from the minutiae, I was really interested about this question of scale. Because I mean, that is indeed like, you know, we need to be making change at the local level, but it can't just sit there. It needs to ripple out across the country in profound ways. So th there was that. And then the other piece is that like, it is, a, it is a gross disservice to think about environmental issues as like a white folks issue. I mean, one, because throughout not only the United States, but throughout Latin America, I mean, around the world, indigenous communities, there are tremendous leadership, like folks are fighting environmental fights all over the place. And for some reason in this country, it's thought of as like a middle-class white issue. But like folks have been standing up and putting their lives on their line and their communities have been taking tremendous risks to fight off gold mining operations that are, you know, looking to either like, you know, dam up their water sources and pollute their water and contaminate air. Like these have been struggles that have been led by folks of color from all over the world um, for generations. And so, you know, all of our histories and present day um, countries of, of origin and current, like, like folks are fighting these fights. And so it is actually our issue. And then there's also just this piece, like when you do polling, and you ask, like, if you take a sample, like if you look at, you know, Arizona or even just nationally, um, what you find is that the folks who actually care the most about environmental issues, it's Latinx communities, indigenous communities, it's African Americans, it's Asian communities. It normally, like, within polling terms, like, 15 points higher than white folks in polling. And then if you also look at the stats around who is impacted the most, by environmental injustice, by environmental racism, 
Like, it's also the very same communities. And then when you ask, like, who, who wants to get involved? Who wants to take steps to, to combat or to assert clean air and demand your right to clean water? It's also our communities. But for too long, environmental organizations, kind of the mainstream national organizations, had not been talking to, had been sort of ignoring this information, and just simply had not been talking to and talking to our communities or recognizing these facts. So that's kind of what made me want to try to change things up a bit. So you talked about that you, you work with Border Action Network down at the border, and I'm really interested to know what, what, what are some of the lessons that you walked away with from working in that area and around those issues, binational issues, which definitely seem to be uh, topics that are going to be uh, part of a lot of issues in the future. Binationalism, right? Bicultural, all of those. Yeah. There's one thing that, that like sort of stands out. And I, and I was, this was like made really clear to me by the membership than a border action network. I think the the organization was initially sort of you know sort of defining itself, calling itself as like an immigrant rights organization. But you know our members who were folks who lived in Douglas, Arizona, who lived, you know went back and forth between Douglas and Agua Prieta, um, folks from Los Ambos Nogales would go back and forth between Nogales, Arizona, and Sonora. And then we partnered with others who were in El Paso and were intertwined with Juarez and similarly in San Diego, Tijuana. Um, but, but one of the things that was really clear was that we weren't, that folks made it really clear, was that like, we are not an immigrant rights organization. Instead, what we need to be is a human rights organization. Because it was like, it was really clear that what the agenda that we had wasn't just about the rights of immigrants, but was bigger than that. And was more about like that you build an agenda that is based on the right that everybody deserves and should have to lead a life of dignity, to have opportunity, to be able to enjoy sort of equity and equitable access in this country as much as in any other country. And so like that frame, that sort of bigger sort of thinking of it, I mean, that also helped, I think, going back to Ernesto's earlier question about the, like, going into the environmental space, it's sort of like that frame that we all just have these fundamental rights and that that's what the fight is about also sort of helps sort of segue into the environmental space. So I think like that was a, that was a useful shift. I mean, as somebody who, who was like, born in this country and grown up here and sort of think about these sort of narrower constructs of, you know, rights and people, that, that, was, that was pretty transformative. Now, what about, did you see or organizing taking place in Mexico? Other uh, organizations that were reaching out to you, to your organizations, to the different organizations you have been involved in a willingness to set up some kind of, a, you know, coalition? Yeah, so we worked very closely with a lot of organizations that were along the border and both, you know, on, on the Mexican side. You know, a lot of folks that were, you know, through, through like tied through faith institutions. Um, so we worked really closely with a lot of, you know, Catholic church organizations and Presbyterian and Episcopal and like folks that sort of set up these like, you know, pretty, pretty radical, radical service oriented institutions that we worked a lot with. Um, and then also just some like community groups that were helping out. I mean, the, the impact of the militarization of the border, you know, just like, 
cause just a, a whole lot of pain and suffering criminalization of folks and there would be this bottleneck right, along the border and so just a lot of institutions and organizations have sort of come together to try to lend a hand to one another in really dire in times of really dire need one of the things that that i've really seen or i've come to realize is um how much immigration especially i think recently contemporary immigration is uh, really being driven by climate change I mean, I was just reading an article this morning that was sent to our text thread. Uh, it was talking about extreme heat and how it's really affecting some some parts of the world. And, and you know, one of them is right here in the United States, Houston, Texas. I mean, you know, when we're faced with these sort of like, they seem like insurmountable uh, changes, right, that are happening to the environment. You know, what are some of the ways that you guys are creating through uh, CHISPA and some of the other work that you're doing? that, um, you know, more people in the uh, Chicano and Latino community can really get involved in combating this? Well, I mean, kind of on your, on your first point, like there's, and, and I will really admit, and I'm sorry for this, but there's, I'm terrible at remembering the stats, but there are some like incredibly disturbing analyses of, of the, 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 the impacts that climate change has on the displacement of people around the globe and the estimations of, of like numbers of people who are who are going to be on the move because for climate change impacts where they have lived where they have called home the livelihoods that they depend on are just drying up are changing um and are just like no longer sustainable it is uh it is profound and a testament to the need to like to really you know, not just think, but like, but act and organize in, in, in a commensurate way, right? Like the threat is incredibly high. So the organized response and the degree of systemic change necessary has got to be really, really big and broad. I'll say like the CHISPA approach and organizing, you know, is, is starting where folks are at. And I will readily admit that like starting where folks are at, I mean, you know, that's a basic organizing principle, but we got to ratchet it up. Because um, you know the 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 threat on uh, the, the the threat is just so high. Um, so I mean, I will say that like, we have we've got organizing programs that are working around electrification, um, in particular meaning meaning um, largely around electrifying school buses. And we we've focused on this campaign called the Clean Buses for Healthy Niños. And it's, it was all sort of tied back into when, the, when Volkswagen got busted for having rigged their diesel vehicles so that they would show up when people take them in to get the emissions test, they would show up as though they were a lot cleaner than they really were. And then they got busted for having rigged them. They had to pay out $15 billion. That money of which about half of it got apportioned out to states and each state then had to determine how they were going to use that money. And it had to go towards decreasing the, the impacts of diesel pollution in their state. And so, you know, we looked at that like it's new money. So we're not fighting over anybody over, over some scraps. It's new money. So how, like, what would be a good, a good opportunity to really engage folks in thinking about clean air and climate change um, is, you know, thinking about our kids. 
And so we developed a campaign called Clean Buses for Healthy Niños, trying to push governors and state legislatures to ensure that they allocate that money towards switching dirty diesel school buses to clean electric school buses. Um, that, so we got a whole bunch of, there's like 11 states that did a significant allocation, some millions of dollars have been earmarked for that kind of transition. And then now folks are working to get school boards to both demand the money and commit to electrifying their fleets and then getting our utilities who put the infrastructure in place and who have a bunch of capital and like they, that's a win-win for them so that they should also be matching the money and coming up with additional resources. So a lot of our, a lot of our folks are trying to organize around sort of school buses and public transportation as a way to kind of get an entry point into thinking about our air, our children's future, our own future, and thinking about climate change. So it's a good way, that is a good way to kind of get involved if. Uh, so to follow up with that, you know, I think that's a great idea. I really like the focus on, on the kids. In the city that I live in, Southern California, Moreno Valley, uh, warehouses are the, one of the main job creators right now. We have lots of land available, warehouses are being built. And we also have uh, the largest population of uh, foster kids in the nation. And I'm just wondering, is there any, any work that you're doing or any way that this idea of transportation and electric buses, public transportation, to touch on that other sector, which is the logistic sector, which is uh, growing you know, tremendously because of Amazon, the size of Amazon, and the way we shop today. I mean, I know for a fact that a lot of the, like the trucking industry was one of the other folks that had their lobbyists out in some of the states vying for access to some of this Volkswagen settlement money. So it seems like, you know, a campaign that is kind of comparable, but focused on them, like it's, it's, at least for some of them anyway, they're interested in making that switch. You know, because a lot of those trucks are just sitting outside the warehouses, just idling and idling the entire time that they're moving, you know, cargo on and off them. and. But yeah, it's, it seems like there's like, there's a really comparable kind of switch from school bus to, to that. Yeah, and it, and it seems, you know, we were talking about, about the border action network and the border issue, which all day too is constant flow of uh, trucks back and forth. Yeah. So I had two questions. I have a friend that I grew up with who's on the Michigan State Board of Education. And one of the issues he's brought up a lot is about the ventilation systems in public schools, especially the ones that brown and black children go to. You know, COVID has made those systems, I don't know, um, they've been brought to light quite a bit lately. And now you see the CDC is recommending air purifiers um, for offices. And it doesn't seem to have risen to a, a national issue yet. Is there any talk of those kind of things down your way? Because we know our kids go to very outdated uh, school in very outdated buildings. And it, it, it's a big concern for her, and she's trying to shed light on that issue. The only other people who I've heard talk about that are friends of mine who are school teachers. But, it, I mean, it seems like it, it's, it's really important to think about um, yeah. and, and to address. The other question I had was, um, in your work along the border, um, kind of want to get your insights as to the atmosphere, the communication back and forth on each side of the border when the family separation policy went into effect. I'm really curious as to was there much, did you see much communication to the Mexican side of the border that 
you know, if you come to the border and you have children, you're going to be separated from them. You know, so I, I left Border Action Network about 10 years ago, so I'm way, way less kind of connected um, than, than I used to be. So I, you know, I would worry that I'm not going to like accurately reflect the systems and communications and stuff that folks have kind of put in place. You know, just the, the friends that are still in the space, I, I just kind of gather bits and pieces from it now. One of the other things I was hoping that we could talk a little bit about, I was, I'm excited that you were mentioning the school bus project. I, I know that when I learned about that this uh, summer, I thought it was brilliant, the way that the money came down and then to sort of push for those electric school buses. One of the things I was hoping was that you could kind of talk to us a little bit about the Promotora model the way that you all are organizing in the communities. And that's one of the things that we try to do here on this podcast is really talk about organizing in like the different ways that, that it can be done. But I think that your model of building these councils in the, in the community is, is really a, a smart one. And I was just hoping you could kind of walk us through it. Sure. So it's a, you know, we use an organizing model that we um, used to use a border action network and kind of went through and, extrapolated it to a little more of an environmental, environmental justice context. The sort of start of it is that, you know, our, our organizers will go out and do, you know, they'll do some events, they'll go to presentations, they go to like places where people congregate. And, you know, they'll, they'll ask folks that are there, who they present to, like who wants to get, you know, who's interested, who wants to get involved, who's, who wants to do something, like give, give me some kind of commitment. And then they'll follow up with them and then invite them to do something else. And, and that sort of like starts to winnow people, if you think about the funnel, yeah. taking the funnel from the big and broad, working it down to the folks yeah. who are you know, interested and starting to show up. And once folks have started to show up a, a few times, then, and if they, if they demonstrate some strong commitment, but then moreover, if they also sort of show not only their individual commitment, but that they start to take on commitments that are increasingly more public and are starting to bring in and demonstrate that they've got, that they're engaging their own network, um, be it family, coworkers, church members, you know, neighbors, whoever. Then we invite those folks to participate in, in an intensive training that upon the graduation of that training, they get the title of being an environmental, uh, environmental justice promotora or promotor. The training itself covers kind of a breadth of things. It's considered to be a foundational training that is implanting in folks a sense of community, you know, kind of camaraderie, connection with the other folks who are going through the training. It in, it's intended to instill a sense of confidence, right? That like speaking out, getting involved, like being the person in your, you know, block or whatever, who's got the clipboard asking people to do things like that's okay. Yeah. Right. It's not like, you're not going to be, uh, you know, that it's okay. And that moreover, it is your right to be able to do that. And then we also go through what are our rights in this country? And we sort of talk about some sources of rights. We talk about the U S constitution and the bill of rights we talk about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. We talk about environmental justice. And then we talk about this, the final source of rights. And we just, you know, it's the community. Right? And we talk about the fact that, you know, the rights that, that we have reviewed, they, you know, they, they all came from somewhere. They came from organized people speaking up like identifying a problem, working together to put them into place. And you only get, you know, like that's the source. So we can be creating new rights 
and, and then we also talk a bit about just how do you, you know, how do you organize? So now you know that you can be out, you know, signing petitions and postcards and holding meetings and bringing folks together and you're, you're protected to do that, but then how do you do it? So then we run through some basic organizing skills. How do you knock on a door? How do you make some phone calls? How do you do a presentation? That kind of stuff. Um, now we do a, a Zoom training. And then, and then folks graduate and they develop a work plan for how they're gonna reach out to their friends, family, neighbors, which ones and what are they gonna ask them to do? And then the organizer's job is to follow up and support the su successful implementation of that work plan. The hope is that from the implementation of that work plan, they will form a committee. And the committee is just a, you know, a group of folks who then go through a sort of light version of the promotor training, but it helps solidify them as a group, gets them grounded in their rights, gets them grounded in sort of their identity, and they also then start to kind of map out how it is that they are gonna serve as a, you know, an organizing space in their community. The, one of the things I find really the, the most fascinating about that, but also the most heartening, is that, that that's a basic organizing model, right? Like you were saying, this is what we were doing in Border Action. And, and I mean, really, when people are trying to figure out like, oh, you know, how are we gonna do this? How are we gonna get people together? How are we gonna make change? It doesn't have to be rocket science. You know, you recruit people through involvement, right? <laughs> they, you go out and you say, hey, do you wanna help us? And then you actually give them something to do. Then, you know, there's a, a part about education where they're learning about the issues. And then at a certain point, I mean, they, they have to be cut loose to, you know, to create these committees, to do these different things. And so it, it seems to me sometimes that it's so simple that it, it really just kind of blows right by people. And then there was another thing that you just said, and I thought this part is actually really important, is I think, you know, we spend so much time arguing about these rights that, that we have, right, that we don't think about the creation of new rights, that we're just kind of stuck on those those particular ones that we have. And, but, you know, with the way that the world is changing and technology, you know, or even, you know, to think about the climate disasters that we face, I mean, what new rights need to be put in place for, for people in order for them to survive? I mean, yeah, it's really, I, I thought that part was particularly good. I hadn't really thought about it like that. Hey, can you, can you all hear me? Yep. Hi, my name is Juan Carlos Vega. I am out of Philadelphia right now, counting our people for sure, and uh, working with the census. And I just want to say thanks, Jen, for sharing what you're doing. And I also had the opportunity to work with Todd in with the Chispa uh, course that just took place and heard about all the initiatives. So I really like the concept of Latinos as environmentalists, right? And Latinos in the inner cities working as environmentalists, right? Because and, you know, I ask, I, I would like for, to hear more from you about this subject, right? Like, how, why do when you look at any environmental, you know, campaign or any environmental show, it's white people talking, right? You don't have Jorge Rivera talking about the polar bears in, you know, southern, in the southern part of the world, right? Or you don't have, you know, talking, uh, you know, Latinos necessarily talking, you know, in the headlines, right? Into, 
you know, what's happening in their inner city when it comes to environmental problems. And being here in, in the Boricua, Puerto Rican neighborhood in Philadelphia, this is, it's almost like environmental disaster. I can't imagine the amount of blood the, on the paint and the pipes that are in this city, not just because it's an old city, but because the government has totally abandoned this section of Philadelphia. And just like Philly, Latino and black and brown neighborhoods, there's, there are like that all across the, the country. But then like, how come like it feels like all we see is like the David Attenboroughs of, you know, the, the environmental movement, but we don't see Latinos or, or we, and I know they're out there at the community level, at the local level, but how come we don't, it seems like, yeah, like, environmental problems and pollution it seems like latinos are at fault for not keeping their trash in their place instead of us being part of the solution right um what are your thoughts on that um jen yes that i mean you're absolutely right <laughs> there the, i think the the you know maybe the the origin of this right like if you sort of think about the origins of the environmental movement and and i'm not a I'm not an expert on this. There's other people that like, you know, study this and write about this. But, you know, the, 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 the origins of the environmental movement is around like conservation. And it's, it's about why, you know, those like the wild, pristine spaces. And so like within that, like, and saving them and preserving them, let's also be clear about saving them and preserving them for the benefit and use of white folks. Um, and, and so like that is the root of most of the, like, like how most environmental organizations kind of see their, like, their mission um, is around, like, the polar bears, the iconic rivers and the parks, and to disconnect that from the impacts in communities and the more kind of lived environmental issues. Um, and even see so it as far. a disconnect between green spaces. Like, you know, some of it is sort of debunking that. You know, I will also say, though, like when, when, you, when you go to national parks, or if you just go, you know, I live in Tucson, Arizona. If I just drive up Mount Lemmon and, you know, stop at any of the trailheads or the picnic areas, it's communities of color that are out in the parks. Like, we're also, like, the ones that are out, like, enjoying the wilderness, too. So there's, like, there's sort of these two levels of which there is just a, a, a you know, sort of gross... I don't know, misunderstanding is way too light of a word. Misrepresentation um, and distortion of who, you know, who cares about the environment, who is in the environment, and who's impacted by the environment. Some of the work, like, like Chispa, for example, focuses largely in communities, right, around school districts, buses, and people stuff in people's neighborhoods. But we also participate in, like, Latino Conservation Week. And our folks are going out, and they'll go hiking in the Grand Canyon, and they'll go to the you know, Rocky Mountain National Park for the folks that are in Colorado and, and you know, go hiking because we also kind of do that too. But the, the representation has, uh, has been like incredibly, you know, reinforced to stick with kind of white folks in the framing of that issue and, and like framing it as a white folks issue. I will say that there's some like, you know, both Telemundo and Univision have like introduced these kind of new green like environment 
kind of shows and programs like there is a lot of push in trying to like in some of the in some of the outlets that that do reflect Latino communities not always great but not well but um, make some attempts at it for them to be thinking and reflecting better the struggles around protecting our environment and who's fighting those fights and who has the solutions and is leading those solutions. Yeah, they, they need to do more Univision and Telemundo because all the toxic crap that comes out of those the other shows that they do on, t on their TV, they need to come up with something positive. So environmental work by Latinos in Espanol is the best thing that they can be doing right now for our communities. Thank you, Jen. Thank you. I think, uh, I think to tie into that, doesn't... Uh... Dr. Dulcinea Lara in New Mexico, isn't she involved with stuff like with the community, what do they call them, encomiendos or something like that, or encomiendos, you know, the communal, like, water systems and, and yeah. farms. Yeah. She does She does good work like that. Another professor, uh, uh, Dr. Devon Pena, is also um, quite well known for, for uh, his environmental work, also in New Mexico. There seems to be quite a bit of it of that going on in New Mexico. But given the history of New Mexico, it also makes sense too, like that that's very land granty. You know, they have a sort of a, a different way of looking at land there, I think, than, than many of us do in other parts of the country. So, yeah. I would like to say that uh, in Michigan, protesting opening day would be met with similar uh, uh, disdain, especially in the uh, Saginaw Bay City uh, <laughs> thumb area of Michigan because those are some hunting fools. Yeah, but that was a great story though. You're like, we're going to go to school on opening day. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I have a quick, I don't know if it's a question or a comment or a suggestion, but um, here are my thoughts. I, I was listening. You have great information. Um, thank you for sharing. Um, thank you for being on here. But I wondered, um, so a lot of uh, people that I know are involved in organizing uh, around a salient issue around something that's significant to them and you know the environment is definitely something that we should be concerned about and we should be involved in and we should have solidarity with those organizers who are involved in that um, I think that maybe um, I, I'd like to hear from from Jennifer and everybody else what they think of I don't know if there's a, a, a recommendations on if we're already working on something, we're already working on an issue so that we don't spread ourselves so thinly. How can we be in solidarity, in solidarity with those organizers or come in and present at some of those um, uh, training events that you're, t that you're doing with, with, with uh, your community, you know, and so maybe a, a set of recommendations so that you don't spread yourself th thinly. You can concentrate on the topic that you're organizing on, but you can also support this cost this way um, because it's intertwined, right? And it goes along with each other. Um, so uh, I'm thinking about here in Michigan, um, our Native American brothers and sisters always, always are defending the rights of for clean water, right? And things like that. But we don't necessarily have to be the organizer to organize their event for them or teach, you know, um, teach their workshops. But we can certainly come in and speak and, and talk about how we organize or share listservs or things like that. So, um, but no, this is this is great. Thank you. I mean, I think one of the things we always try to think about is like, how can we show up for one another? Um, 
and and support you know and just support one another um and 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 when there are and try to identify those opportunities when when we have a shared interest that that cross some you know that, that cross kind of issue cross issue spaces and cross issue lines and if there's opportunities for us to be able to work together to help each one and each other accomplish the goals that we need to accomplish and when that can happen fantastic and if it can't happen that's also okay but let's have one another's back um, you know, so our folks from, you know, Chispa folks have been out supporting, you know, and there are a bunch of actions around the fight for 15, our folks were there. Um, our folks are out for Black Lives Matter. Our folks are like, our, you know, we, we try to be there to show up and, and be able to help show that like we see that like, you know, without, there's no, there's no climate justice without racial justice and that like, you know, we, we get that. You know, and we'll just say from, you know, from like organizing, we definitely aren't trying to try to find folks who are already working on other issues or grassroots leaders in other organizations. Like we're looking for, for folks that aren't already involved um, because that's also, I think part of what's necessary to expand kind of the, the dem- I don't know, but I hate to use sort of the, the, like the democratic participation, right? To expand. Right leadership in this country like we got to have more people involved in more spaces and so you know we definitely aren't trying to it's not actually useful to just keep kind of piling issues and actions and tasks on top of people who are already involved in other movements and stuff yeah so can you talk a little bit then about how chispa then fits into this kind of greater platform of like the Green New Deal or the Sunshine Movement, which has a little bit more like national recognition. And how then are you thinking about being political as an organization in this election? Yeah. Well, I mean, there are some, there are some things that make Chispa like unique and kind of interesting. Like we're part of this like large national environmental organization um, that is the, you know, kind of the, the shorthand is that you know, LCB is kind of the political arm, LCB the League of Conservation Voters, is like the political arm of the environmental movement. And so we have, LCB has a family of organizations that are heavily involved in, in the elections, you know, from a presidential level to some key Senate races. We have state affiliates in 30 plus states who also at their level focus on like some of their niches or their niche is, is state elections and state legislation. There is, I think we see Chispa and community organizing within this context, right, of organizations that do political work and policy work. Like we, we help fuel movement, which I think is incredibly important. And, and this is one of the amazing things that I, I uh, love the most about the Green New Deal is that, you know, it, it is like, pushed the envelope and like broaden that spectrum out of what it means to confront climate change, right? It's not just about setting these like renewable energy standards and some of the kind of traditional environmental speak. No, I mean, it is about thinking, thinking so much more broadly around housing and infrastructure and transportation and healthcare systems. All of that is necessary to be able to combat climate change at the scale commensurate to the threat that it is to us. And so I think the Green New Deal has created the space for movements to be able to connect with one another. And because it has been, it is so much more radical than your sort of traditional environmental perspective, it is like created some space too for organizing 
around it and new and different ways and opportunities for partnerships and coalitions and allyship in different ways. So, you know, Chispa ends up then being, because of its reliance on organizing, is trying to like fuel and continue to put the pressure, create the political space for bigger and bolder things to be accomplished at the policy level and by elected officials. I really appreciate what, what you're saying. Uh, you know, we, we really have tried over the past uh, several months to have the kind of conversations that really bring us back to what it, what it takes to create the political will within the Chicano Latino community, because it's, it's clear that we're, we're kind of, we're kind of missing something right now, you know, but I think that this is uh, this whole idea around environmentalism, particularly after my experiences this summer, I mean, became much more clear to me that if you look at, uh, you know, what we consider traditional uh, Latino community organizations or Chicano community organizations, they do not talk about this at all. And so, you know, really thinking about like, how we as individuals who are having this conversation, who are involved in these different organizations, can go out to those organizations and really begin to, to push environmental justice within, um, within their platforms, I think is, is super important. I think if organizations, particularly political organizations, want to be relevant today, or people want, yeah, the political organizations want to be relevant, that they have to talk about environmental justice. I mean, if they're not talking about that, then they're out of touch with the world. They're out of touch with what's happening around them. I think that that makes them irrelevant. So, yeah, this has been um, Hey, Jen, I have a quick question. What do you think of the new Sierra Club president being Puerto Rican from the island, now leading Sierra Club at the national level? Do you think that's, that's going to, you know, what do you think it means to us Latinos having a president that's Latino, the first Latino, running a, you know, what's usually a white-based organization. Will that bring any change? What do you think? Do you know him? Give us the juice. <laughs> I, just, I don't know. I think it's enormously important. There's there's this report that comes out every year. Um, it's put out by a group called Green 2.0. And they look at, they have pushed all the environmental organizations to enter data into, into this data system about the racial diversity and the gender diversity of their boards, their leadership, their staff overall. And it, it's improving, but it is stark and it is disturbing. Oh Lord, it's gonna take forever. We're just, it's improving at the beginning of including Latinos and blacks in the environmental movements. See you in 50 years, yeah. <laughs> It's insane. It's going to take forever. Look, Jen, I recommend that you go and call this guy at Sierra Club and see if we can have some national leadership join there with the work that you're all doing in Chispa. I don't know. It's what I think the best we can do because analysis of reports, we're going to be here another 50 years. Actually, the waters will flood all over us, so we won't see it. Anyway, sorry, gotta go. Thank you, Jen. Really, you're. Uh, I really like what you're doing. Gotta go now. Bye. Bye. From the. I, mean, I, will, I will say on that report though, they actually they call out the groups, and they've done a scorecard, and they look at who's improved and who hasn't improved, and they've had some press conferences where they like name names of the groups that are like refusing to enter oh, their data. And so, like, they are using it not just as, like, a thing that gathers dust on the shelf, but are using it as a real tool to exert some pressure and to call out groups that really do need to be called out. Good. Nobody likes to get an F on a scorecard from somebody else. So that's good pressure. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> See you later, Juan Carlos. Bye, y'all. 
That's all we have for today. My name is Jennifer Allen Arroz, and on behalf of the Dysfunctionals, I want to thank you all for listening. Be sure to leave a comment on our podcast site. Just search for The Reality Dysfunction on Podbean or like us on our Reality Dysfunction Facebook page. Best of all, share the episode. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Hey, homie. I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the rasa. This is the reality dysfunction.